Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <coughs> Several weeks ago, we started looking at the church. And I kind of started off with asking the question, what is a church? Uh, then the next time we were together, we looked at the question of, well, who is in the church? And I know that some of you may say, well, what's all these questions? We're not really getting in a lot of answers. And like I told you, my, my aim is not necessarily to definitively lay it all out in one night, but really to ask you to think about this stuff and ask you to be thinking about what this looks like and how we understand it and what is involved. Sometimes I'm more asking you to just kind of give it some thought um, and have some time to marinate and some time to work through it and to think through it. So we asked, what is the church? Who is in the church? And tonight I want to ask maybe a, a question that you might find to be synonymous, but I think to be different. And the question is this, what does it mean to be a part of the church? So, Ask the question of what is a church. Ask the question of who is in the church. But then what does it mean to be a part of the church? And what I mean, mainly mean is I'm talking about like for church membership. Now if we think about membership in a secular model, a lot of times membership can either be seen from a privilege or a requirement standpoint. If I go to join a golf club, like I try to look up Oak Tree Golf Country Club down in the Oklahoma City area. I try to look it up to see how much it is to join. They won't tell you how much it is to join. I just fill out a form saying I want to join and they get back with me. I found one forum that was talking about the prices of joining country clubs and it said that for Oak Tree, the initial fee, according to this forum, which they could say whatever they wanted to say, the initial fee was fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Then the monthly fee is eight hundred to eleven hundred dollars a month to be a member of the club. Now, of course, there's all kinds of benefits and perks that come with it. I worked with a guy down in Ardmore, and you had Dornick Kills, and that was the fancy housing edition with the golf club down there in Ardmore, and he didn't live at Dornick Hills, but he had a membership to the Dornick Hills golf course. He paid $325 a month for a membership to the golf course. And I said, now what in the world does that membership get you? He says, I get to play golf as much as I want, and I get free golf cart rental. I said, do you play golf that much that the green fees and the cart rental, if you played somewhere else, would they see that? And he said, well, sometimes I do. And he said, then you get perks on this, this, and this. So when we think about membership, membership often is seen from a privilege versus a requirement. So you join a golf course or you join a gym, you pay a certain amount of money, but there's a certain amount of privilege that you have for being a part or a member of that club, whether it's a, a museum, the Oklahoma Science Museum, the, the zoo down in Oklahoma City, a, a theater, you can join them. There's costs associated with it, but then there's also benefits that you get. Think about it another way. When you go down to Sam's or, or Costco, these membership warehouses that they say, we want you to come and we want you to join our Organization and in exchange you get to buy or you get a discount on your stuff. We see these pictures of membership all throughout our society around us and how this membership works. You want to join the Lions, you want to join the Kiwanis, you want to join the Moose, you want to join the Elks, you want to join another civic organization, there's going to be some type of requirements to join and then there's going to be some type of privileges for those that have joined and then there's going to be some, types of ex- there's going to be some type of expectation for 
for those that have joined. Now, in no way do I want to try to say that, well, we've got to turn all this in to the church or turn the church into all of that. But I do think that when we look around the society, we see different models, different examples of what membership looks like. And in many times, when you look in a secular model, the higher the cost of the membership, the lower the requirements. The lower the cost of membership, the higher the requirements. Now, I realize that in church, you're going to say, well, the church isn't the same way. I understand that. In the church, usually time, most of the time, you have neither. Somebody comes and joins the church. Somebody is a member of the church. Somebody is a part of the church. We do not require or demand that they give to the church. There is no expectations or standards for participation or involvement in the church. There isn't any standards of membership or what is required or what do we expect for them to do in the way of investing in the church. So somebody can come, be a member, be a part of the church, and we have no standards or requirements. And you may say, well, Spence, what is the problem with that? Well... A lot of times when we think about there not being any standards or requirements or any sacrificial service involved, the value of that membership then goes down. So then when you think about the church world today, does church membership matter? There's other bigger churches, more secular churches, more contemporary churches, if you will, that... They don't even do membership. You come and you're just a part of the church. You come and get saved. You come and get baptized. There is no such thing as membership in the church. They don't even have this concept of membership in the church. And so what I think of is, does membership matter? And if it it does, what is the standard for church membership today? So what does it mean to be a part of the church? What is the standard of church membership today? I bring that up because as with more subjects than we like to admit, there is not a clear-cut model in Scripture for church membership. I can't take you to a chapter and verse and says, this is how you receive members. This is the expectations, requirements, or standards for the members. It's more of looking at the entire corpus of Scripture and saying, what does the Bible teach us and what is best practice and the most wise for the situation we're in. So what I want to do is, you are there in 1 Corinthians, I want to look at three pictures of what I would submit to you as examples of weak membership. And then I want to look at three examples of what I would submit to you as strong membership. Membership. Just three examples on either side just to make you think. These are the dangers if we do not value, uphold, have some type of uh, understanding or have some type of framework for what membership looks like. If we just say, well, it doesn't really matter who is in or who is out. If it doesn't matter, if we say, well, it doesn't matter who comes in and we have no standards, we have no expectations, we have nothing, then membership is of no value and of no importance and we have the danger of falling in this category weak membership. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul is talking and and I've said this to you before but when Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth he's writing about a number of problems that are taking place. So as he's writing to the church there in Corinth he's going to start outlining this is a problem, this is a problem, that's a problem, I don't like this, you shouldn't be doing that. He just starts laying it out A, B, C, 1, 2, 3 these are the things that you are doing. So in 1 
1 Corinthians 5, he gets to something that may be a little bit um, uncomfortable, but he, he actually writes to the church. He's not writing to the individual. He's not writing to the other part of the guilty union. He is writing to the church. And he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So what he's saying is there is a man in an immoral relationship either with his mother or with his stepmother. Most people would say they think it was his stepmother because the way it's the way it's described here in the passage. But it says this man is in an immoral relationship doing something that is indefinitely contradiction to God's word and he says the whole church is just ignoring it. Arrogant, saying, we're not going to mess with it. It's not a problem. We're not going to deal with it. We're not going to call it out. Yes, we know that he's a part of this church. Yes, we know that everyone else knows that he's a part of this church. Yes, we know that what he's doing is not right. Yes, we know that he's living in contradiction of God's word. Yes, we know all these things, but we don't care. And Paul is writing to tell them, that's not okay. That's not reflecting well upon the kingdom of God. That's not boding well to their faithfulness before God. In fact, Paul calls for his removal. (coughs) Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says, this guy should be gone. Not saying that, well, that's being loving. Not saying, well, you're supposed to, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. He says, this guy is doing something that should be not tolerated among the church. And I submit to you this evening that the reason why this was going on was not because the church had tried to change the Word of God. They just had a weak, or they just had a, a picture of membership that led to a weakness because they didn't, they didn't have standards. They didn't have any form of protections. They just said, whoever wants to be, can be, but then whoever is, is, is. And Paul comes in and says, no, that's not, that's not okay. You continue there in 1 Corinthians, you get over to chapter 10. And he's going to talk about idolatry. He continues and he's been talking about food offered to idols. He's been talking about the unmarried and the widowed. And then you go over here to chapter 10 and verse 14, he starts talking about this rampant idolatry that is taking place. Now in that context, most likely he's talking about the worship of idols, the homage to idols and people coming and praying and bowing down before idols. But I think that in our times today, we can understand that idolatry can be a lot of different things. Idolatry can be a hobby. Idolatry can be a relationship. Idolatry can be a pastime or a pleasure. Idolatry can be a possession. Idolatry can be anything that takes the place of God's priority in our lives. And so he says there in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food is offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul, I think, is reminding us that when it comes to idolatry and this rampant idolatry, he's reminding us that sin is never isolated. You go back to Joshua chapter 7 and you get this sin of Achan and how this sin affected the entire people. When they are sailing out the land, I think it's Joshua 23 or something right down there, where they settle out the land and the two and a half of the tribes go to the other side of the Jordan to settle in. Remember the story? They build this giant altar. And those that were there on the west side of the Jordan assumed that they were building this altar so they were going to start practicing pagan idolatry. So here comes the other ten tribes and they come down there and they're going to whoop them up. They're going to wipe them out. And they come and say, what have you done? And they said, no, 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 no. We've done this as a memorial. We've done this as a remembrance. And they said, well, it matters because if you start practicing idolatry, you get involved with rampant pagan worship, it's going to affect all of us. And the same thing is true today, I believe. Our sin affects one another. Our lack of obedience affects one another. And it it can be contagious to a certain extent. And so Paul wants to remind them that sin is never isolated. Now, the question always comes, well, then what do you do? Do you go and say, well, you know what? You shouldn't do that while I am doing this. And how do you find the sins? And I understand that it gets very, very sticky. But to say, because it's going to get sticky, we just don't have any kind of exhortation to sanctification. That doesn't make sense either. To say, well, because we can't, well, we can't speak from a, a state of sinlessness or blamelessness, so I can't call them to repentance or obedience to God because I'm not 100% repentant and obedient to God. That makes no sense. It'd be like me looking at my boys and saying, well, I can't tell my boys to act right if I don't always act right. That's not the way this would work. I mean, I have no problem looking at the boys and saying, I didn't do it right, but I want you to do it right. I have no problem with telling them, I want you to make better decisions than I made. I have no problem with looking at them and saying, that is wrong, not because I say it's wrong, but because God says it's wrong. And yet when it comes to the life of the church, people are coming in and they are rampant idolaters and they're going off and all these other things. And yet the church stays silent. had a conversation just the other day with I can't remember who it was I was talking to now but I said at some point the church is going to have to address the God of sports because right now the church is silent and they're not saying a peep but as the tournament teams and the pickup teams and as sports moves from a two or three month season to a year around activity and as sports enters into Sundays and Wednesdays and as sports becomes a priority that people schedule everything else around sports I said at some point the church is going to have to address it and I said and right now we're not saying a word we're not saying anything and I said, but at some point, it's going to get to the it's going to get to the level that they're going to it's going to be evident they're not worshiping God; they're worshiping an athletic competition. 
And, and so Paul comes in and he says, there's a danger. There's a danger when you see this rampant idolatry taking place and you don't say anything. You are watching people profane the name of God and they and you're not saying a word. Then you look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and you see another example. I've read this before when you get ready to observe the Lord's Supper. But you come there in chapter 11 and verse 17 and you see these pictures of them coming and one of the two ordinances that we identify as ordinances of the church, we have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. The two ordinances because that's what Christ ordained that the church do. So we see an ordinance as Christ telling the church, this is what I want you to do as you continue advancing the church and moving forward during this church age. So these are the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So one of the two things that Christ commanded us to do during his absence listen to what Paul says in verse 17 he says but in the following instructions I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worst for in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat for in eating one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry another gets drunk what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing what shall I say to you shall I commend you in this no I will not what they were doing is they were profaning the Lord's Supper they were making a mockery of the holiness of God and the church was seeing these people come in make a mockery of God profane his holiness and they weren't saying a peep they weren't saying a word. And Paul says, what are you doing? It's one thing for it to be taking place outside these walls, but why would we let it take place inside these walls? Remember growing up, a young man would come into the house, in my grandparents' house, you'd sit down at the table to eat, and you had a ball cap on. My grandma would come up to that young man, and she would grab the top of his ball cap, hat and hair, and she would pull. And her em- emphasis was, you do not sit down in my house with that ball cap. Growing up, my grandpa would tell you that if one of his grandsons walked into the house with a body piercing somewhere above the neck, he said he would rip it out. And I remember when I was about Luke's age, I believed him. <laughs> I really did think that that is what he is going to do. He's going to grab his pliers and he's going to rip that piercing right out of me because my grandparents said, when you come into our house, we have standards. We have expectations. You are welcomed. You are loved. You are wanted. But when you come in, you will come in with a certain amount of reverence and respect for where you're coming in to. I think about that today because I wonder where are we at when it comes to the life of the church? Talked about this morning when it comes to the immorality. I think David Dave was um, David Malfres was talking about in Sunday school about the dress of ladies and how they come even to church dressed and or the lack thereof. And so we see these thinking taking place. And Paul is coming in and saying, "Hey, these are not these are not things to be." Accommodated. These are not things to be congratulated. These are things to be worrisome because these things are taking place inside the church. Inside the people that identify themselves as a part of the church. Inside the, inside the church with the people that identify themselves as the church. And the people outside are going, look at the people in the church. Look at what they're doing. And he said, that's not a good thing. 
But then let me give you some signs of a healthy membership. Go with me over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. First part of the chapter is Ananias and Sapphira. Husband and wife see Barnabas, sells the field, brings all the money to God, gets some attaboys. They think we want some attaboys. They sell a field. They only take half of it to the apostles. They give half of it and say, no, that's all of it. And they lied to God. What happened? As soon as that happened, then it tells that the husband, boom, fell down. Just fell down. It wasn't like Peter shot him, injured him, nothing. The Holy Spirit killed him right on the spot. They take him out to bury him. The wife comes in. Peter looks at the wife and says, did you really sell this field for X amount of money? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I did. That's what I did. Boom. She falls down and she dies. And in verse 11 of Acts chapter 5, it says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Can you just imagine? When somebody didn't give the proper amount in the offering plate, <laughs> boom. I mean, you can just imagine you all sitting here and the offering plate's coming by and it comes by, the first person puts some money in and then boom, they die. And you're like, oh, i got to give more money. And, and can you imagine what that's going to do to your church attendance when you know that if you come in and if you don't give the proper amount... <laughs> Bye-bye. See you later. I mean, can you imagine what that would do? But what did it do? It says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, for the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that... They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So this idea that he that I get out of this is that this fear led to faithfulness. When they realized the power of God, and they realized their faithfulness mattered to God, their obedience mattered to God. When they had this proper fear of God, and they took truth, and they took love, and that lends itself to being harmony among the believers. In other words, when they realize that God's not messing around, we're not going to sit here and treat God flippantly. We're not going to trifle with God. We're going to sit here in fear and awe and reverence of God. And we're going to follow the truthfulness of God's word. We're going to do it the way God wants to do it. You had truth and you had love amongst the people. You had harmony amongst the believers. That's what it tells us there in verse 12 all the way down through 16 that you had this church that was just growing. Why? Because they were grounded in truth. They were grounded in love. And they were grounded in fear of God. Go back to the left just a little bit to Acts chapter 4. In verse 23, there's another picture, if you will. James, I mean, sorry, Peter and John had healed the lame man. While they Peter was preaching... When the crowd had gathered around, the soldiers come, the religious soldiers come, they arrest Peter and John, they take him before the religious council, the religious council wants to know what they're going, what they're doing, tells them, hey, we don't like what you're talking about, we don't like the message you're spreading, we don't like what you're saying, and they say, well, too bad, we're going to say it anyways. So they said, well, there's really nothing we can do for them, they really haven't done anything wrong, so they release them, because they really had anything else they could do with them, and so you get to chapter 4 and verse 23, and it says, when they released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven 
and in the earth and the sea and everything in them. And who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're saying, we still remember. The same people that crucified Jesus are still in town. And if they're coming, together, they're coming together and they would crucify Jesus, they could do the same thing to us. They could do everything they did to Jesus. They could do it right to us. And so they're, they're praying and they're saying, we realize these same things are possible. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When they're faced with opposition, when they're faced with persecution, when they're faced with threats, when they're faced with bad days ahead, possibly, what do they do? They pray for boldness and not for comfort. They knew the cost, but they also knew the reward. They were more concerned about their obedience to God than they were about their obedience to man. Now we, I feel like we were very fortunate during this last year. Other municipalities other cities, other towns took other actions and took other steps. Just this last week, I was on a video um, call with uh, a group of guys. One of them is the pastor of Quell Springs Baptist Church right down here on the side of Quell Springs Mall. Because Oklahoma City still has their mandate, they are still submitting to the mandates placed upon the local government. They are still services, social distance, masked the whole nine yards. 40 miles away. Talking to another another pastor in Alabama, their local municipality, they took many steps just like Oklahoma City. They're going through the same things. Another pastor out in South Carolina, going through the same things. They're talking about how they're going to plan on fully reopening. How they're going to try to get people back to the normal size of Easter service. They even said, you know what, this Easter, it was sweet that we got to be together, but we are still at less than half of the attendance we normally see. And then they look at me. And they say, well, Spence, what's it like there in Wellston? <laughs> I, I said, we, we added space last Sunday. Well, what about the mask? And I said, people come in, they got them on, and they're welcome. People come in, they don't got them on, and they're welcome. I said, I don't make a big deal out of it. I, I don't try to force it. And they said, well, you don't have every other road taped off. I said, no. But I don't expect people to sit next to each other if they don't want to. I mean, it's a free country. You come in, and if you want to sit in a different chair, you can sit in a different chair. We're not mandating who can sit where. But they're looking at me, and they're just going, well, you're just weird. And I think, well, I feel like we have been greatly blessed. Amen. 
we haven't had to make some of those decisions. We haven't had to make some of those choices on what we're going to do. Rob McCoy is a pastor out at a Christ Chapel um, church out there on the, um, Cal- uh, the Pacific Coast out there in California. Um, and he is, they have defied the reopening along with Dr. John MacArthur out there at Grace Community Church. But they have defied the deals put out from Go- by Gavin, uh, by Governor Newsom there. He calls him uh, Newsolini is what he calls him. And he has, <laughs> they're defying these and every single Sunday they're open. He said they're being fined $2,000 per staff person for every week they defy the government's order. And he just says, we don't care. We're going to have church for people to come and have church. Now, I think that we've been greatly blessed. But when I come back to Acts chapter 4, here's what I think about. I, I, I realize it's not a one-for-one comparison. But what I think about is, is that Peter and John were preaching. Peter and John were proclaiming Christ. The officials came in and said, you can't talk like that. You can't be like that. And they didn't say, well, we're going to have to pray about it. They didn't say, well, we're going to have to have a conversation about it. They didn't say, well, let's go back and talk to the rest of the congregation. They just said, too bad. <laughs> We're going to do what God has called us to do. And then when they get together and the congregation is all there, they're not going to have a vote. They just say, God, we know that the threat is there. God, we know that the opposition is there. God, we know what Satan is trying to do. And yet, God, we are grateful that you let us serve you no matter what the circumstance. And God, we pray that we would be bold regardless of what they try to do to us. Now, that's a healthy church. That's a healthy church that knows the priorities. And they're not worried about the pleasure of man. They're worried about the pleasure of God. They're not listening to the voice of man. They're listening to the voice of God. And, and I, see, I see that and I think, oh, well, may that be us one day. When they come in and they say you can't talk about certain subjects because it's hate speech. When they come in and they say that you can't go through certain practices. You can't have certain services because it's not inclusive. Have you heard about the Equality Act that passed through the House and is sitting at the Senate right now? And what it is doing, it is putting on par gender identity, saying that to not discriminate, it's not the fact that we don't discriminate based upon gender, which that has been on the books for some time, but they are putting this on par. Pelosi has already passed it, her and the House of Representatives, they've already passed it, they sent it to the Senate. Hopefully, they're not going to be able to get closure. Hopefully, they're not going to be able to pass it through the Senate. Uh, President Biden has already said that if it comes to his desk, he will sign it, based on what I understand, but it's this idea that it's not a matter of saying we will not discriminate based upon gender. Now they're saying you cannot, you cannot discriminate based upon on gender and identity. So whatever that person is, they have to have the same rights and the same privileges as everybody else. A.K.A. Biologically born men and women's bathrooms. Biologically born women and men's bathrooms. What are we going to do? But I mean, there's these questions that are coming up, and this is the things that are happening. And so these oppositions are real, and this is a real reality that we are facing in our lifetime. When Eli was born, it was against federal statute for same-sex marriages to be legally recognized by the country. And just in his 13 years, we have gone from... Defining a marriage as a union between a man and woman to defining a marriage as a civic union between species and species. And who knows what the next 13 years is going to hold. Let me go to this last one. Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2. Acts chapter 5, you see this fearless church, a fear-led church because they had seen that the power of God and they wanted to serve God and follow God. Acts chapter 4, you see this boldness, you see the desire of the church to say we want to follow God no matter what. You get to Philippians chapter 2 and you see this church and you see the healthiness of the church as being described by their interactions with one another. Listen to what Paul writes them to the church there in Philippi in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on there in verse 14 and he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is reminding the church that it's their action between one another that is representative of the health of the church. He is pointing out and he is congratulating them and he is encouraging them and saying you're always looking for ways to serve one another instead of just looking ways for you to be served yourself. And he says, so you can tell by the healthiness of the membership of the church based on how they act with one another. How they respond with one another. You all have mentioned it yourself about the change that has been seen just in the last few months where the closing prayer is had and the actions of people. You know when a church is struggling, when a church is just not doing well health-wise, everybody scatters. I mean, the person says this, man, and it's a rush to the parking lot. Everybody's in a hurry to get out. And then yet you see a difference whenever people stay. And they linger. They fellowship. There's joy. There's happiness. They want to talk to one another. And, and they sit there and they visit. And there, there's this friendship and there's this commonality and there's this, there's this certain back and forth that is going on. And you're saying, that is what it's supposed to be. People being together. People doing life together. People happy to see one another. Then you're not just coming to church and saying, here I am. But you're coming to church saying, I like coming to church. It's a sign of healthiness. And it's a sign of a healthy body believers. So let me bring this back here tonight. We are sitting here and we're trying to picture what membership should look like today. A secular model would tell us that we should charge membership. That's not practical, not biblical. I don't believe it's even biblical for us to charge. So so and so, they family, they want to come and they want to join the church. Well, great. Your initial membership fee is this, and then you've got an X amount of monthly membership or an annual membership that you got to pay to the church. Well, that, that doesn't sound right. What if we put requirements to join the church? We have some. They must be baptized. They must be saved. They must be scripturally baptized. To join the church. Those are two of the requirements that we have. But are those all the requirements that we should have? I come to join the church and I'm saved and I'm baptized. But I'm abusive to my children. 
come to join the church. I've been saved and scripturally baptized. But I sell pornography. Should there be requirements? And then if there are requirements, what is the basis? Or who defines the standards? Who says that you can be a glutton, but you can't be a children abuser? Both of them are sin. You can be a gossiper, but you can't sell pornography. Both are a sin. What do we set the basis off? What do we set the standards? Or even think about standards. What would be the standards? Confessions, covenants, salvation, baptisms, attendance, service, involvement. If we say, well, this is what it means to be a part of the church. This is what it looks like to be a part of this church. This is what a church member looks like. What are the standards? What are the things that we put forth that says this is what it means to be a part of the church? Maybe another one. How are members received? How are members expelled? I think all these questions just come back to say what is the value that we're going to put on the membership of the church? I think it's wise to have membership. I'm not trying to say anything against it. I'm just I'm saying sometimes we just assume that well we've just always done it this way and we're just going to keep going but then if someone says well why do you do it that way we don't have a chapter and verse. We just say well this is the way we've always done it. But what we've always done is it getting the results that we want to get moving forward. In fact, I heard one person say one time, and I'm probably going to botch it up, but the system is designed to get exactly the results that you're getting. And the way I understood it was, is that, you know what, what we're getting as far as the value that people put on the membership, the devotion and commitment people have to their participation and their part of the local church, all of the methods and all of the programs we have are exactly designed to get what we get today. And yet we're sitting here today, and it doesn't seem like membership really matters to a lot of people. Not like it used to. Not like people used to be proud that they were a part of this church or they knew, I'm not going to do that because of if the church finds out. Or if someone gets around. the word gets around, I'll be in trouble at the church. So I wonder, what does it mean to be a part of the church today?